Well, good morning, everyone, and just want to say I really appreciate all you guys. Like, we have our ups and downs, as any church does, and sometimes we have those times where we kind of rub on each other a little bit, but I'm just so thankful that we've got the Holy Spirit, who is like kind of olive oil that just kind of has those rough edges of rubbing off. We don't get all ruptured and fragmented and broken apart. Rather, we all start to move together in a really cool way. And that little snapshot just then, I felt just really wanted to thank um, Ruth and Barb and Benjamin for leading us in music that was just, I felt, worthy of the king with our limited resources. It was really good, so thank you. So today we continue on in Revelation and it's our third part today and I've called it Alpha Love. I've called it Alpha Love and last week I sort of talked about the Revelation series as being right in your face. It's right in your face, my brothers and sisters. It is, it's going to, if you take it seriously... It should scare you in a good way, the kind of stay away from the cliff edge, good way. It should encourage you. It should cause dismay. It should cause you to look deep into the mirror that is God's word and see what is looking back. And as I said last week, you know, I'm a pilot, so this isn't just your normal car seat that you, car seat belt that you need to put on. This is a five-point, very strong harness that you need to do up. Benjamin's doing it up right now. And today's no different, and I'm not just saying that for embellishment or to engage you. I've got no doubt in my mind that where we are right now as a church, in fact, where the worldwide church is right now, we need to hear the book of Revelation. We need to hear it preached. We need to hear it proclaimed. We need to be exhorted by it, to use an older word. And so I just really encourage you, you know, wherever, wherever you're at right now, maybe a bit distracted, thinking about things that you're going to do later or things that you've already done, I just ask that you right now say a little prayer to the Lord God, the mighty King, and just ask him to open up your heart and, and hear. Alpha Love, Revelation 2, 1 to 7. I just wanted to create or read out to you some scenarios with the question that's sort of hovering, how does this happen? And I, and I genuinely want us to consider, how does this happen? So I'll start off with a man and his busyness. A man is brought up in the ways of God. He, as a child, he goes to church. He hears all the good stuff about the Lord Jesus. He's involved in church work as he grows. Then adult life comes along. He's now still a hard worker. He's providing for his family. He's doing the right thing. He's generally well-respected in the workplace, well-known about town. But at home, um, sometimes there's issues. Maybe he's into games. Maybe he's into screen time. It's his downtime after all. He deserves that. He's at church now and again, but in the main, he's pretty much chasing the next job, the next bit of satisfaction. He just doesn't feel like he has the time to serve others, to love others. He doesn't feel like he has the time to serve the Lord Jesus, to love the Lord Jesus, and perhaps it's rationalised in a whole bunch of different ways, but if you look at it and you look at the behaviour, He's just pretty satisfied right where he is. And I just want to say, how does this happen? How does that happen? How do, how do so many of my church brothers that I've known my whole life get to a point where they're like that? How will, how will it in my own life be prevented? A man and a woman. A man looks at a woman on their wedding day. She looks back. There is deep yearning love there. They vow. They kiss. They celebrate. They become one. And yet many years later, a man looks at a woman and she at him and there are bitter words, there are lawyers, there are custody disputes. How does this happen? How do they go from being deeply in love one to another to that? It happens so much. A man and his doctrine. A man reads about end times or maybe it's creation timings or maybe it's God's sovereign control of the universe and how that plays out on a world that appears to be free. Or maybe it's spiritual gifts. He looks at his church. He doesn't see things as he should. So he concludes that he will cut himself off from the church rather than help her on her journey. And pretty soon, that's all he talks about when he does talk about godly things, doctrinal issues. He's sprouting this doctrine and that doctrine, maybe even you know, poo-pooing churches, critiquing churches left, right and centre. And people about him, they hear this and it sounds kind of kosher, but they detect an unloved. They detect something cold about this man, something bitter. He talks about Jesus, but it's really just using Jesus to justify his doctrinal view. 
His doctrine isn't leading him into a deeper love with Jesus. It's the other way around. Jesus is being used to lead him into a growing fixation on his doctrine. How does this happen? How does it happen? You and your mirror. You look at yourself in the mirror, you and your wrinkles and your deterioration are now 70 years old. And I want us to project here because this is a very real scenario for us in this world that is constantly pulling us away from our first love. God is now distant to you. He's a force, not a face, and a weak force at that. There's no personal desire or want or need for God and for his son Jesus and for the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's just you and your aging. And you don't even ask, what have I done with my life? You don't even ask or consider that I've played, I've enjoyed, but what have I done with my life? Because you don't even care anymore. All there is is the now. How does this happen? Sounds pretty heavy. And I want it to be heavy. That's why I said put your five-point harness on, so bear with me. Because we really need to hear this. Men, I'm going to talk to you about alpha love today. This is gritty. This love is Golgotha, take my cross up a hill love. This is the warrior king's love. So men, older men, younger, I want you to listen to what, this is not a meek love. And yet, at the same time, I want you to understand that this is constrained love that we are now going to talk about. It is a powerful love, like a laser beam that's constrained. That's how our God is. He could have obliterated this universe instantly. Instead, he came as a man. This is alpha love. This is first love, okay? Now, we look at a church in Ephesus, and hopefully you're already there at Revelation 2, 1 to 7. It's about AD 50. There is a little map. I'm not sure how well it will turn out up there. Hopefully it turns out all right. It is in a place that we now call Turkey. It's one of seven churches, this church of Ephesus. And there's the general area, and you can see the island of Patmos. As we heard, John is on Patmos. He writes. He's the disciple of Jesus. He's now probably about 90, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus. There's a whole bunch of churches there. Now, go back about 30 or 40 years before, about AD 50, and Ephesus has a love prayer prayed over her, a love prayer. That's, that's all I can call it, really. It's by the Apostle Paul, and this is what he prays. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it. You can't actually read and listen at the same time, so just listen but, um, and just consider this. This is Paul praying for the church at Ephesus. Listen. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven. This reason is all the doctrine he's built up about what God has done for the church. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now listen to this bit. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That is a love prayer prayed over Ephesus. And yet, 30 to 40 years later, if the chronology is roughly right, and there's a bit of dispute, but it's roughly right, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Revelation 2.4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Ephesus and her faith heroes. Again, rewind, about AD 50. It's Ephesus, the church, the great apostle. He spent on his missionary journeys more time in Ephesus than any other church as far as we're told in Acts. He's there for over two years. The great apostle Paul in Ephesus for two years, over two years. Apollos was there. Some of you may not know him. He was an awesome guy well-versed in Greek knowledge, Jewish knowledge. He could debate anyone and win. And he loved the Lord Jesus. He was in Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla, they were awesome, awesome couple. They actually taught Apollos a thing or two in his younger days probably. They were in Ephesus. And according to church tradition, John, the apostle who's writing this now, was also in Ephesus. Now, how would you like that in your home group? Paul, Apollos. Priscilla, Aquila, and John. Ephesus and her faith heroes. Wow, what a blessing. And yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. How could they forsake their first love when they had faith heroes like that? Ephesus and her miracles. Ephesus was where extraordinary miracles were done by Paul. Even hankies that Paul touched were taken to the sick 
And when they, like, you normally don't touch a hanky, do you? Someone else's hanky. And yet, so powerful was the spirit upon him that it flowed out and, you know, by remote control, people were healed. Extraordinary. Evil spirits cowered. In fact, when there were non-kingdom men trying to throw out, uh, throw out these demons, the demons just beat them up. But when Paul came along, they were scared. Alpha love. Ephesus and her miracles. And yet, 30 to 40 years later, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Then Ephesus and her sacrifice. The sacrifices she made. This is the church which began by men and women putting their livelihood on the line. You remember the story when we went through the series in Acts. They sold all their scrolls, their magical scrolls, their sorcery scrolls. 50,000 drachmas. Each drachma was worth a day's wages. So I did some maths. Seven million bucks for an average wage earner. That's seven million bucks worth of stuff. They just threw it on the line. They had fallen in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and they threw down their money. They just threw it down and they burnt it. Wow. Love. Love. First love. Alpha love. And yet you have forsaken your first love. How does this happen? And then... You know, the last, we're actually told more about Ephesus. That's why I'm giving you these little snapshots. We're told more about Ephesus than any other church. Isn't that interesting? All the blessings that she had, magnificent. We're told that Paul, in his final words to the church, as he left them, he said, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas. And he warns them against false teachers. Sound familiar with what we're about to read? And then in a really touching scene, it's recorded this way. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that he would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So they're kneeling down in the beach there. They're so sad to see Paul go. You know, some people think Paul's all bolchy and you wouldn't want to be his friend. The people of the church loved him. And yet... After that farewell, something happened. Something happened. Slow decline. Something happened to that fervor, to that alpha love, to that first love. You've forsaken your first love. And this is awful. It's a horrific, dreadful thing to forsake your first love when the first love is the king of the universe. Why is it so awful? We're going to come to that in a minute, but before we do, I just want to read it. Remember the blessing. Those who hear these words are blessed, is what Revelation says. And those that keep them are blessed. So let's read together. Maybe you'd even just like to close your eyes and just listen to the word of God read to you. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. Remember that height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. More on them later. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, these are not my words, and they're not even just the words of John. As it says there, what the Spirit says to the churches, let them hear. And they are in red in my Bible. So it is what Jesus says. And we know the Father has sent Jesus, has sent the Spirit. Help us to hear. Help us to hear, to take the words to heart and to be people of first love, that this will be a church that overflows with first love. How the world needs first love Christians. How the world needs true, blue, authentic, alpha love Christians. Jesus, hear our prayer. Holy Spirit, Move amongst us. Father God, decree it. Decree that Willowburn 
will be a church of first love. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, I'm pretty intense today because I've been convicted by this sermon for the last two or three weeks in my prep, and there's been all these weird connections. For example, what does Islam have to do with this? What does a pooey nappy have to do with this? What does a run have to do with this? You'll see shortly. A little bit of revision first from the last couple of weeks. As you recall, when I first preached, we talked about the seven blessings of Revelation. I won't go through all of them today, but the first one was, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. That's going to be our new memory verse. So you're not just blessed to sit here and if it goes in one ear and out the other. No, 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 you've got to hear it, take it to heart and do it. That's why I really insisted that we um, call the series Revelation, Do These Words, because it repeats a few times. Keep the words of this prophecy. How do you keep the words of this prophecy? We talked about that last week as well. How do you keep them? You keep them by waiting faithfully, by being washed, by working faithfully, and then the wow factor, that's four W's, the wow factor when the Lord Jesus actually. So Andrew said it so well, you do the words by being ready. You go back and listen to that if you want. Then Ben took us through an introduction to who Jesus is. That was cool. But there's a clear and present danger, a clear and present threat to you being ready. And we're going to see various types of threats in these seven churches, but the first one we're going to see is this immensely horrific thing, this dreadful thing, this weighty thing of neglecting, abandoning, departing from, forsaking, divorcing. It's the same word that is often used for divorce. Divorcing your first love. So this isn't just a slow drift away necessarily. This is something internal that goes, no, I've had enough now. You have divorced your first love is what it actually can be saying there. And then, as I said before, this is awful. Why is it awful? I just want to go through three reasons why, okay? Hopefully it's not going to be too long, so please listen. Uh, And please consider, as I was reading in James this morning, what does it mean to be, not just to be hearers of the word, but doers? Why? Why is it terrible? Reason number one. Reason number one, it is awful to have forsaken first love because of who is saying it. You know, if I say to you, I was your first love, and now you're not. It's just Adrian Park. Who cares? Really? Kerry might. She's my, she's my first love in this world. So, you know, who cares? But if it is the king of the universe, even if it's not the king of the universe, if it was like the prime minister, you know, it would mean something big to you because of who is saying it. And if God is distant to you, please get on your knees and ask what it is that is in your heart that blocks distorts who God really is because he is the living one. He was dead and behold, he is alive forever and ever. This is in Revelation 1.18 and he holds the keys of death and Hades. That means he has control over them. From last week, Ben did it so well. Revelation 1, who's speaking? He's clothed in purity, white like wool robes. He's clothed with power, a voice like a clap of thunder. He has passion, burning eyes. It's the mega glorified Lord Jesus that is speaking. And it is he who is saying, you've divorced me. You've divorced your first love. And look at where he is. He's amongst the lampstands. And we now get into what is just saturating the book of Revelation, which is metaphor and symbology. Now, it's almost like God wanted us to start off easy. So he tells us what this means. And last week we talked a little bit about some of our guiding principles and I'll talk more about them in a minute. But there he is amongst the lampstands. So if you look just back at 112, 120, he's standing amongst these lampstands and in his hand he's gripping seven stars and I've got my little Greek dictionary out and he's literally stars, as in like stars in the heavens kind of thing. That's the same word that's used. Obviously words are driven by context. But just think about that for a moment. Just take it on surface level. Lord Jesus Christ holding seven stars. There's a big star burning out there right now called the sun. Could you hold that in your hand, Kathy? No, <laughs> you couldn't. You would be vaporized. So just think of one, if you map out this metaphor, of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can hold seven stars in. No worries. No 
They're dramas. Now, obviously, we're told that they represent something else, but they are put forward as stars, indicating power, glory, and yet they're nothing compared to the glory of the one who holds them. And no wonder in Revelation 1.17, when I, John, saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He places his right hand on, Jesus places his right hand on, Jesus, on John and says, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. Now just consider for a minute, the last time John saw Jesus was when? Just after the crucifixion on a mountain. The last time, that was the last time he hasn't seen him for probably 50 years. I wonder what's going on in his heart. And he's, what happens? Does anyone remember from last week? What does he do? High five? No. Bang. On his face. On his face before the one who is his first love. Who is the great king. How great he must be for John, the great apostle, just to fall flat on his face. And now Revelation 2.1, look at where he is. He's amongst the golden lampstand. So he says to the, in Revelation 2.1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. He is amongst the lampstands. So what are the lampstands and the stars? And this is a little sidebar now into our four guiding principles for Revelation because as we saw last week, 12 million hits just for Revelation debate. That should warn us that we are going into, to a certain extent, what could be troubled waters in terms of what means what, where and when. So last week it was three, I added one, um, and you'll see why in a minute. First of all, the first guiding principle, because what's the point of a book if you can't do it, if you can't live it out, if it's just knowledge for debate or fodder for debate? What's the point of it? So our first guiding principle is we want to work hard in the power of the Spirit to do the words of this prophecy. And the power of the Spirit is a segue in a principle two, which is we want to rely on supernatural help to do the words of this prophecy, which means we want to rely on the Holy Spirit to give, for him to give us understanding. And go back to Revelation, or the first series that we did, and I talked about how Revelation is given as general to specific. Just like Jesus' prophecies, many of them were general. They didn't know which woman. woman. They didn't know uh, exactly what time. They had to wait for that, but they had the contours. And then they were given the full de detail. Same with us. We want to wait uh, to be given that full detail so that we'll know what all these things mean. We don't want to overinterpret or underinterpret. So you can underinterpret and go, oh, it doesn't matter, it's not that important. Or you can overinterpret and go, well, this is actually a certain presidential candidate. And things like that. That is not what we want to do. And then the fourth principle is we want to keep meanings intra word. So I'll give you an example of intra word. So we want to go to the word to see what symbology it's drawing from in the Old Testament, because most times it's drawing from symbology in the Old Testament. So what are the lampstands? Thankfully, we're told, Revelation 1.20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is what? The seven stars are angels, or it could be messengers, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So if we go intra-word, we come to Hebrews 9, and we see Jesus, the high priest, set up... Um, and superimposed across the whole tabernacle. Now, bear with me. I know this can get a little bit hard, but please listen, because this is really important. The tabernacle was set up. Where were the lampstands in the tabernacle? They were at the threshold, at the open, well, pretty much in front of the holy place. So now we superimpose that to heaven, the real temple. Where is Jesus and the lampstands? At the very threshold to God. He, he, he is in the way. If you want to get to God, he is in the way, literally. He is the way. So where he is standing amongst the lampstands indicates, again, his power and majesty, his oneness with God, his, here I am, on the way. And he's amongst the lampstands, amongst the churches. That's where the churches are. They rely on the Lord Jesus to have access to God. We know that Hebrews was just pointing out that all that tabernacle stuff was like a living metaphor, like, a, like an, um, an imitation, in a sense, of the real stuff in heaven, a good imitation. Leviticus says that the Israelites were to bring clear oil of pressed olive oil for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning, and the priests would keep it burning. 
Now it's Jesus who keeps it burning. It's Jesus who keeps Willowburn's lamp burning if we have a lamp. He is amongst it. He holds the, uh, the stars in his hand, the angels, and he holds the power of the lampstands. And what do the angels mean? Are they guardian angels? Are they messengers? Does Willowburn have its own angel? I don't know, maybe. It's possible if you just read it at face value. I don't want to go too far with that, but what I do know is Jesus is equipping us. He is looking after us. So we can rightly say, when we see this picture here, behold, like Ben did, Willowburn, here is your king. Behold, Willowburn, here is your priest. Behold, here is the holder of stars, the sustainer of churches. Here is the way to the heart of God, the holy place. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the living God, the King of the universe. Amen. Amen and hallelujah. Woo. Sorry. Um, I, don't, I, just, I don't want to be glib about it, you know, because I just, you know, and it's, it's, it's a shame that I have to feel ashamed sometimes of enthusiasm, you know what I mean? But that's the culture we live in. But we also have our own kingdom culture. I'm a work in progress. So, reason, so that's reason number one, because, because of who Jesus is, okay? Reason number two, it is awful to forsake first love. It's because of where the churches are heading, okay? It's because of where the churches are heading. These seven churches are heading trouble into tribulation. Now, there's much discussion about what the seven churches might say to us. What do they represent? Do they represent the ages of the church? Some scholars will say yes. Some scholars will say no. Do they represent just regular things that all churches go through? A lot of scholars say yes. It's not overly important to me whether that's right or not because what's important to me is where these seven churches are situated in Revelation. And basically, they're situated just before, literally, just before all the trials and tribulations. So I believe what the churches are saying to us and what Jesus would have said to us is, look at these churches, Willowburn. Look at where they are. They right now are in a situation where they've got a few problems. It's causing them to maybe sink. And I'm going to mix a lot of metaphors here. It's causing them to sink. But shortly, when the trial and tribulation comes, when that big deluge of Revelation 5 through to 20 comes, they're going to go down. If they don't sort this, they're, going to go down. they're not going to like have their finest moment then because they haven't been faithful with little things. What's going to happen when that big wave comes? There's going to be trouble. They could well go from sinking to drowning. Right now, within their own DNA, there are the seeds of destruction. And those seeds could well become choker weeds that congest and kill their faith once the heat of Revelation 5 to 20 comes on. You know, in our doctrinal understanding, in our understanding of who Jesus is, all um, theological systems have this. They have little stowaways, little things that don't quite fit into their doctrinal framework. Sometimes they just stay as stowaways, harmless. Other times they leap on deck and take over. And you can see this in one of the biggest movements that there is right now, you can see it resurge. And I'm not even going to say what it is because I don't want to. But it resurges, it stops, resurges, stop. There's a reason why. Because the stowaways become hijackers. And so what I believe the seven churches are saying to us is, watch out because what you do now really matters. And if you don't eject now these satanic and earthly mutinies that are going on inside you and inside the church... When Revelation 4 to 20, Revelation 5 to 20 comes, you're going to drown. Ephesus, listen. Listen, listen. It's so important that you don't forget your first love because what will get you through? The plagues, the trials, and all that kind of thing. This is a great little slide that I pulled off the internet. And what you can see here is that all the churches are commended, then they're critiqued. They're corrected and they're called. They're called to overcome. They're called to persevere. And each time you can see there the seeds. It's only uh, four of the churches shown there. You can see the seeds of their own destruction. And Jesus, he loves the church so much. He loves them so much that he says to the church this. Basically, don't float along with this stuff that is right now choking your first love. Please don't just float. 
It feels okay at the moment. But look, you are here going with the flow. It's something I use with the psalm as well. And I just think it's such a powerful picture because a little bit upstream, it all feels nice. It's, it's a gentle stream. It's lovely. But there's a horrible, horrible destructive thing coming. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Listen, act now. In fact, all of the rest of Revelation, the trials, the terrors, the tribulation, the call is to do something now, endure now, overcome now, be on that trajectory now, have that as your pattern of behaviour now, have that as your, your, your good habits now. And you know, Willowburn, we each have these propensities within us. I'm going to share something later in myself, that I prepared this sermon and I was ashamed of myself. The same human nature, the same temptations, the same enemy. Listen and act now. That's The churches back then, they had the same issues as we do now or will have or have had and the call is to do something now. Don't go with the flow. Reason number three, it is awful to a forsaken first love because of what doesn't count. Because of what doesn't count in this king of kings kind of mindset. What Jesus doesn't care about. What doesn't register with him. We sung before, may it be a sweet sound in your ear. Oh, what a, what a great song. I bought all those old 80s ones out. It was cool. Uh, like, what we do does register with the king of kings. This is a mystery. He's a loving being. What we do registers with him. He's not just a force. He's a face. He's not just a power. He is a personality, supreme, divine personality. Think about that. What you do can count. What doesn't count with him? Look at Revelation 2, verse 5 with me. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, this is really interesting because just previously he said, I know your deeds. I know your perseverance. I know you have not tolerated wicked men. And then he says, repent, I'm going to take away your lampstand. Why? Surely that would match up somehow. Like surely it would, uh, I don't know, balance Jesus' scales. Okay, we don't have much first love, Lord, but we have endurance and we have perseverance. Come on, Lord. No. No. Why? Because deeds without love don't count. They won't stop the rot. They won't stop the lampstand being removed. I know your hard work. Verse 2, I know your hard work, but hard work without first love doesn't count. It won't stop the lamp from being removed. Perseverance, I know your perseverance, but perseverance without love doesn't count. That won't stop the lampstand being removed. They were so discerning. Remember what, what Paul said to them on that beach? Watch out, false teachers will arise. They were so good at that. They became so good at that. He actually commends them 40 years later. You don't put up with the practices of the Nicolaitans. The best commentaries say that the Nicolaitans were these kind of licentious bunch that just went, they pulled the cheap grace card all the time, basically. They said, you know what, you can be a Christian and you can go around, sleep around, do this, do that, doesn't matter. You can still be a Christian, just pull the cheap grace card, not seeing, again, the seeds of their own destruction were already in their hearts. And you can see how they disproportionated Paul's call, because originally he prayed for love. How wide, how high, how deep. And then he got to watch out for false teachers. And they just disproportionated that. Terrible. That won't stop the lampstand from being removed. You can be a doctrinal mausoleum, a tomb. Clean living. You know, okay, we won't do what the Nicolaitans do. We'll live clean, we'll separate ourselves, we won't go to certain things. But that didn't stop the lampstand from being removed. All that stuff was without love. It was without this first love. Hard work without love. Perseverance without love. Discernment without love. Clean living without love. Terrible. Do you know a thief can be really persevering? He can be really, really tenacious about how he's going to rob someone and not give up. You know, a liar can be really tenacious and determined about their lying. It is only love that takes something and brings it back to a noble cause. No thief who is loving will rip someone else off. They will become a law-abiding citizen who want to serve people. They will give of themselves. 
Without love, terrible, awful. 1 Corinthians 13, without love, I'm what? A clanging gong, an annoying sound. It should have been musical and sweet. Instead, it was annoying. Think of two songs playing at the same time. They never go together. Or very rarely. That's how this is. There's this song of my mouth saying that I'm loving, but in my heart I'm not loving, and there's these two horrible sounds jarring against each other now. They were once beautiful. And what I found, and I haven't seen this before, and I wanted to share it with you guys as we get to the latter part of the sermon. God is with you. God is going to. God is. So I did a keyword search, God is, right, in my Bible, NIV. And it came up with 167 fine uh, search outcomes. And what it was was, you know, God is with you. God is going to. God is with us. And what I was looking for is the times that we are told God is a noun as in he is something concrete. Does anyone remember God is a consuming fire? That's one. Um, God is uh, yeah, a consuming fire. We're also told God is light. Now think about this. We know God is all-powerful, omnipotent, but we are never told as a direct revelation from God to say that God is power. Now we, are, now we know God is all-knowing, right? But we are never told... God is knowledge. What are we told God is? Concrete. Something we experience every day, hopefully. God is love. God is love. The reason to deny first love, to forsake first love, is so horrible. Is you're actually denying God's very essence. His ultimate glorification is that he has taken the big biceps of divine sovereign power and put them on a cross. That's alpha love for us. Alpha love, gentlemen. Manly love. Love that King David, the warrior, the, the giant slayer, would write songs about. Alpha love. God is love. As John says elsewhere in 1 John 4, we know and rely on the, lo the love God has for us. God is love. What was really interesting in 1 John 4, first part, he warns them about false teaching again. But then the latter part of the section is, all God is love. And he says, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. That way we have confidence in the day of judgment. That means whenever God expresses power, it is loving. Whenever God expresses knowledge, it is loving. Even when God is angry, it is a loving anger against the sinful acts that destroy, cripple, the simple acts that would set up even an industry that allows child sex slaves. At such an astral, like, you should be so angry at that. Because if you love little children, you will be angry at that. People go, oh, we don't like to think of God as angry. If he wasn't angry at that, I would not serve him. God is love. And you have forsaken your first love. Ephesus, you have forsaken your first love. And that means that love isn't optional, it's essential. It's an awful thing to divorce your first love. How does it happen? I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power to know this love that surpasses knowledge. How did it happen? I don't, I don't really know for sure, we're not told, but it is something that occurs deep within. Where you suddenly disproportionate, you start focusing perhaps on doctrine, or perhaps you start focusing just on... I don't know, living this life and having a great life and yet God is just distant. I don't know how it happens exactly. A better question is what does first love look like? What does first love actually look like in behaviours? I'm going to put something up here shortly and um, I'm hoping the sound is ready to go there, BJ, hopefully. Uh, it's from a podcast called Unbelievable, which I commend to you. So what they do is they get Christians and atheists and people from opposing faith views, worldviews, on to talk about it. And the one, I guess, overarching kind of governing thing is that they keep it calm and they present things factually. And so it was really, uh, really good. You'll hear all sorts of different people on this. This particular time, they've got a, uh, two people that go to a place called Speaker's Corner. They're Christians. Oh, yeah, I'll bring it. Yeah, it should be ready. Hopefully. <laughs> um, now, where this all came before, I said, what does Islam have to do? So I was listening to an audio book by Nabil Koresh called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Awesome book. 
and I was convicted by it. You know what I was convicted by? It? For the first few chapters, he just talks about his early Islamic life where he was learning, memorizing the Quran, learning, memorizing prayers, praying five times uh, a day on prostrate in some of those prayers. Uh, he was with his mum and his mum and his dad would teach him apologetic type arguments to defend his faith. And the re- you know why I was convicted? Because if we were to say, what does love look like in terms of devotion, worship, have a look at that. And it's, 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 not, it's not the true God. I was just really convicted. Then I heard this uh, podcast, and I'm just going to listen to a bit of it. So they go to this place called Speaker's Corner where Muslims, Christians can actually stand up and debate each other. It's in London. It's going gonna, it's gonna to probably be a bit provoking. I want you to hear it. Because when I heard it, I was like... Um, and I'll just let you hear it, thinking about what does first love look like? Okay, I'm hoping this will work. Aired again last year. Um, because it'll just give a little sense, at least, of the kind of atmosphere that goes on down, down at Speaker's Corner for anyone who maybe hasn't experienced it. You can, you can keep your Christianity, you can keep your backward religion, you can keep your Trinity, you can keep the three gods. We only need one God. We only need one God. But more was to come now, as Jay began to encourage the Christians in the crowd to do the same with the name of Jesus. So there you go, a little taster of, of, of what the atmosphere can be like. Now, lots of people, um, Beth, would, would say, what on earth made you want to go and into that kind of a, a lion's den, bear pit? Um, what, what is it that attracted you to, to going down to Speaker's Corner and joining in with what, what Jay was doing? I think as I walked the streets of London, I saw more and more Muslims, um, fully covered women, um, men with big beards, and just this growing Islam on the streets and very little in the church um, engaging with that kind of Muslim. Mm. A lot of people reaching out to refugees and helping those in need, but these really staunch, strong Muslims, yeah. I, I didn't see much happening with them. And all I'd been told is make friends, make friends, make friends with Muslims. And I wanted to go further. I wanted to take my faith to Muslims. I wanted to talk about faith issues with Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when I went down there, I saw real faith really alive. Mm. It, it, it wasn't a faith I agreed with. I don't agree with Islam on any category. But I saw they really believed what they believed. And I thought, we Christians, we actually stand on truth. We also need to communicate with them and, and give them an alternative message mm. about mm. especially who Jesus is yeah. and who God is and so on. I didn't put that up to raise you up against Islam. It's not, that's not what it's about. What it's about is listening to passionate people on both sides because it's important to them. And what's really interesting is Beth Grove there who was talking, she goes herself... The other guy, I think his name's Jay Smith or whatever, he's been beaten up a few times. And I'm not even saying you should all be doing that. that, That's not what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying is that for them, their call was to do that. And Alpha Love, Alpha Love says to them, I don't want to do that. I don't want to. She talks about, I didn't really want to do it, but I will do it because of the Lord Jesus. Because he's so important. And, you know, I felt felt the hairs go up on the back of me. I went, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Like in our little namby-pamby kind of politically correct culture, we're too scared. Now, what happens at the end of these meetings, just so you know, the speaker's corner, often someone will you know, get Beth down and go, oh, you did really well, an Islamic, but you did really well, Beth, can we go and have tea together now? After all the yelling and everything, right? Because in their culture, if something's important to them, they will sometimes yell about it. Now, what was really interesting is, as I was recording that and just trying to set it up on my slide, I had the Facebook thing up. Okay, and I'd accidentally put this uh, post with my little, because I like to put little teasers out there, you know, so hopefully more people will come and, and hear the message of the Lord Jesus. And I put that up there. Does anyone see how many likes I got for the teaser today? I got probably six, seven hundred, I don't know. Most of them aren't Christians, and I accidentally put it on my main feed instead of church. I got one like. I got one like about first love. I don't even care about me and you hearing me. I want you to hear about the Lord Jesus. Right, and uh, while that was happening, in the background, I heard this uh, this roar, like a roar of a crowd. It was just like what I just heard there. It was almost exactly the same. 
Does anyone know what it might have been? I thought maybe there was a riot. It was Gold Park, because we live just up from Gold Park. It's grand final season. And I heard people yelling the same kind of way with the same kind of passion. I went and watched hockey finals. Same kind of passion. You know, getting up the ump and stuff like that. Because they weren't happy, because they care. And I would say, look at them. They really care. They really love. And maybe, you know, you think about all the motivations. Maybe fear. Maybe just groupthink. But if you want to know someone who cares, you look at them. And I go, as Beth Grove just said, where is the alpha love that can be seen in you? Where is the first love that can be seen in you? You know, we are told in John that let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world. Do you know there's a little bit after that? That we might live through him. So how does, it, how does it mean, what does it mean to live and to love through him? So when I go for my run, I, I often have this living metaphor going on, which is when I see rubbish, I think to myself, I'm going to use this like a kingdom metaphor. I think I've shared it with you before a few times. And yesterday I was running and I was thinking, yeah, yeah, there's another bit of paper, pick that up, little mental tick to self, good little bit of kingdom work there, you know, and I often think if everyone was doing that in a similar way for all the societal issues, Christians were living that. Oh, how cool would that be? You know, trying to just stop that little bit of gossip in the workplace over here with a sign of tangible love. Or over here, you know, trying to help your boss rather than hinder your boss. Or at home, you know, blokes are washing dishes or whatever. Like, they're kind of picking up that rubbish, that sinful kind of rubbish and, and, and ejecting. It's just my little metaphor. Don't take it too far. Maybe I shouldn't get too far. But the thought came to me, Adrian, would you pick up poo? Think so. Because wh wh why? Why would I? Why can I just pick that up? No worries. Because it's clean. Do you know what I saw in the next two minutes? See, all the parents know. <laughs> Did you leave that there? Oh. <laughs> I saw a nappy, and it was bulgy. It was in. I actually prepositioned that for photographic purposes, but it was on the road, in the middle of the road, and I didn't want to take the photo in the middle of the road. I thought I might get run over. And so straight away, the debate starts. Ah, I've already picked up a heap of rubbish. I've already kind of persevered, Lord. I've already done hard words. But you know the next thing that came to me? It, just, it was almost automatic, maybe because of my sermon prep. It was, I'm going to pick it up for you, Jesus. I'm going to pick it up because I love you. And you might go, that's just a silly metaphor, Adrian. But it wasn't to me in that moment. I'm going to pick it up for you. And what I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters at Willowburn, when it comes time to get your hands dirty, and it will, because what did our Lord say? Anyone who wants to follow me must what? Take up their cross. It's going to hurt a bit. It's going to cost you something. You're going to get your hands a bit dirty, but not be dirty. Um, will you do it? And I just kind of think of all those scenarios at work, you know. I wouldn't do it on my own, but I'll do it for Jesus. There's bitterness at work. Maybe there's a conversation, and the person you're talking about or they're talking about, you don't really like either. Will you contribute to that or will you steer it away? Will alpha love be seen? I wouldn't do it on my own, but I'll do it for you, Jesus. There's an opportunity to serve, but your plans will have to change. Your priorities will have to change. I wouldn't do it on my own, but I'll do it for you, Jesus. Someone says something ill-considered in the church. It's hurtful or it's just annoying. You could take that and run with it, talk about it, make it a big deal. Or... Alpha love. I wouldn't do it on my own, but I'll do it for you, Jesus. Maybe I'll go and talk to that person, or maybe I'll just let it go through to the keeper. Someone has a non-essential doctrine in their heads that concerns you. Will alpha love be seen? I wouldn't do it on my own, but I'll do it for you, Jesus. Maybe I'll start a Bible study. Maybe I'll just go and talk to that person. Maybe I'll just let it go through the, the, the keeper because they're in a safe, healthy church where the word's going to be preached and the light of Jesus is just going to absorb any other stuff or just overcome any other stuff. Just imagine Willowburn brimming over with alpha love. You would be unique and special. That we might live and love through him. Whoever does not love does not know God. First love looks like. Have a look on Facebook. I won't read them now because uh, 
we're running out of time, but have a look on Facebook if you get a chance at what people wrote. It was awesome. Now imagine that in hands and feet, actions that the world can see. My little Facebook post there, the only person that liked it was not even a churchgoer. Let me just ask you this. If every time you saw something to do of the church and you love your church because the Lord loves the church, what if you all just liked it, just as a, just as a practice? And then everyone else, because that's what happens in, on Facebook, they go, all these likes, oh, what's going on over there? Maybe, maybe that's just like a living metaphor for what really happens with a church. It's like Christians don't seem to show that they like their church or like their religion, so it can't be that important. But if all these likes started erupting, maybe it would be different. Maybe, I don't know. First love looks like love, longing, burning desire. Let me finish with this. The last verse. He who has an ear, let him hear. Whenever you see that, that's a solemn thing to say. Listen, listen now. Listen, listen, listen. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In Ephesus, their shrines was built, or their temple was built on a tree, a tree shrine. John flips it around. Jesus flips it around. The Holy Spirit flips it around. You don't want to know the real tree? It's this tree of life. And superimposed over that is the cross, another tree, often referred to in Scripture as a tree. And so as we come now to the end of this service, we are going to communicate. Sorry, we're going to have communion together. We are going to remember our first love together. It's a beautiful time because what happens is whatever's in the past is in the past. The future looms before you. You are not yet at the tipping point where everything before outweighs what is to come. Things can change. And each of us, I pray, will go away. We will consider, listen to what God is going to say to us in the next few days about where our first love is. But for now, with communion, it doesn't matter where you are, what you've done, because Jesus is worthy. His blood is worthy. You just need to say, Lord, I'm repenting as you've called me to do. I don't just want to be a doer. I just don't want to be a hearer. I want to be a hearer and a doer. I'm repenting. I'm coming before you. I'm asking to be made clean. And you come and partake of this love feast. That's what celebrations are often called, a love feast. So I encourage you to have a little bit of time to yourself. There's going to be a song playing which Barb uh, shared with us, the Revelation song by Phillips, Craig and Dean. And so the words uh, will be up the front. Encourage you to you know, glance up at them now and again, listen to the words uh, as we prepare ourselves. You can eat the bread straight away, the body of our first love, broken for us. We'll then keep the, uh, the cup, the blood, spilt for us in an epic display of alpha love. So I just encourage you to prepare your hearts now. Let's pray.